0: I'm just going to say it now, you all who have been listening to the show, you are aware that I have undiagnosed some form of dyslexia to where I mean one phrase and another phrase comes out. Well, here is your, here is your, your uh, precursor, if you will, your advisement, because me and Leah also have a history in the youth group Christian scene way back in the day so if you hear me call this casting crows <laughs> or counting crowns you will know what has happened it just happened before we hit record and i was like we gotta
1: put that <laughs> well in that the show. was
0: intentional but i guarantee you now it's in my head okay. it will be said once or twice counting crows counting crows yes i have i actually have one can you believe it
1: oh i i thought that was gonna be the transition to our names, but okay.
0: Oh yeah, we could do that. That's fine too. No, I have a question. Okay, we're coming up to. I would like to call it festival season, but it's not really festival. Like we're getting back into shows.
1: It's also not even a season. I feel like festivals are starting in March and going to October this year. Like what the hell? Yeah,
0: and then there's some festivals which will not be named. Hmm. hmm. That already in third days and only gonna see five minutes of a band you like but mm, that's that's tbd if that happens but anyway, yeah. anyway we're anyway, we're entering se- season to watch shows again as long as everything goes well what band t shirt do you want to pick up whether you are going to plan on mm. seeing them or not see them what band t-shirt do you want to pick up this year
1: Hmm, This is a very dumb answer because it's not really a band, but they this artist has yet to make merchandise. I actually want to wear on my body. I want a damn Taylor Swift shirt. Mm. All her shirts are so. I it, it's it's the
0: picture of her. It's the yes. it's the album cover. Yes. But I, and those are my least favorite shirts because they're the least creative shirts, or and they charge fifty dollars for that. She'll
1: have something really cute. Like they just redropped a um, Lover line for valentine's day yeah they like re- went back and released more lover merch right. and they have this really cute it's a pink tie-dyed hoodie that says you're my lover and taylor's handwriting like embroidered on it The thing is 70 dollars. i can make give me a cricket i'll I make could, it for you i could embroider that myself right for less money than that so like i do have a red cardigan but no one unless you know what it is like you're mm-hmm. not like that's taylor swift merch i just want some taylor swift merch that i'll actually wear
0: yeah No, I agree with that. Um, I am excited to pick back up an Under Oath t-shirt because I'm going to go see them um, with Spirit Box. Every Time I Die was on that tour list, but they have broken up. Oh. There's a lot of controversy going on with them right now. We're not going to get into it. It's a ton of drama. So they added a stray from the Path, I think, and another band. Mm. But anyway, I used to have an Under Oath. I had maybe one or two Under Oath t-shirts. I, for some reason, got rid of them. I don't know why. Um, but my first Amazon order was also an Under Oath <laughs> That's poster. Hilarious. I went back and looked and sure enough, 2009, I ordered an Under Oath p- poster. That's hilarious. So I would love a good Under Oath mm. t-shirt again. Josh bought a hat for, uh, from Under Oath because he's into hats now. Mm. And they called it a dad hat, which is just both an offense, but also a fair critique that's, of where the scene is at. Yeah, they're all dads now. Yeah, so that is my plan. Good choice. And with that, I'm Beth Ann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a cps executive meeting? No. no. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haul you, let me turn down the thermostat. Who <laughs> <This> is is <banned. laughs> bad We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. Um,
1: Welcome new listeners, because we have not welcomed new listeners in a very long time. Mm -hmm. So if this is your first episode or you're like, hello, hello, we're happy to have you here. Thanks for listening to our chaos.
0: (laughs) Please stay and continue to listen to our chaos.
1: (laughs) Every episode is a wild ride. Anyway, today we are talking about counting crows and this was not originally my plan, but I'm still debating whether I want to do the original artist that I picked yeah. because they had some pretty insane sexual assault allegations that they pled guilty to. I'm not going to name them in case I end up doing them later, but um, it, we pinned that one because yeah. I was not in the mood to, to do that. So I was like, what is a band that I can do that like is isn't going to have all this drama attached to them? And my way of choosing was I went to Spotify and I found a rock playlist. I
0: started scrolling and I was like, ah, Counting Crows. And here we are. May I just say stark difference from your original choice? Yes. Very stark difference, but I'm sure we'll be... a much better episode, happier yes. episode than when yes. you were previously planning.
1: Um, The only thing that I'm I'm not really going to touch on, but some people have issue with, with Counting Crows, is lead singer Adam Duritz for a very long time, like up until last year, had dreadlocks. Yes. But he's white. But like, I mean, that was just a 90s thing, to be honest. It was well, very much a... He lived in Berkeley, California, and that was the thing. Yeah. It doesn't seem, from what I can tell, that there's not a whole lot of, like, hate for him online. Because he didn't do it from a place of, like, I'm cool, I have dreadlocks. Right. He was just like, this is the style.
0: Because if it's Berkeley, I mean...
1: Everyone there was just smoking weed and had dreadlocks. Yeah, well, I mean
0: a lot of bands coming out of there like corn at some point had dreadlocks I forgot about baker that. they're from bakersfield yeah. pod had it they're from i think bakersfield or somewhere so no they're from anaheim so that was a 90s cult like yeah. zach de, i think zach de la roca had um dreadlocks at some point yeah. so it is a cultural thing of the 90s i am glad the conversation is coming out like hey guys that may have not been the coolest <laughs> it may have not. been cultural appropriation so I appreciate the conversation. We can look back. It happened, but
1: he actually had a uh, nervous breakdown in 2019 and shaved them off. So he no longer has dreadlocks. Hmm. Um, but let us let us go back to the beginning in, in the Berkeley, California beginnings where we meet Adam Duritz. He grew up in Berkeley, California. There is not a lot of information about his early life. It kind of just picks up when he got into music. So by the mid eighties he dropped out of college and decided to pursue music full time and joins a band called the Himalayas. Welcome to the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> John Ratzenberger was there. Playing Have the snow a Yeti. Cone. <laughs> um and let's keep in mind this is the mid to late eighties. And they're trying to make it in the same scene as the
0: scene that Green Day and Primus
1: are getting started in. <laughs>
0: It was a nice idea, guys. <laughs> Very nice idea.
1: California is hot. It's like the 80s glam metal revolution all over again, where I guess on any given night you could listen oh, to- Oh, the punk under scene of yeah. that time? Forget it. You were going to have a great night wherever you went. Yeah. Um, And so he spends several years- jumping from one band to another he'll like meet a friend who plays guitar and they'll play coffee shops and bars and then that doesn't really go anywhere so he'll meet another friend that he plays guitar mm-hmm. and they'll play coffee shops and bars um and you know a couple years of that and he gets to the point where he's just like it's really frustrated that he's not making it and not going anywhere and watching these other bands that are playing the same scenes as them make it big and so he starts to write these songs about like his inner turmoil that are like really vulnerable songs and really personal songs. And he ends up meeting David Bryson who goes on to be in counting crows. And the two of them keep making this, this coffee shop circuit. And they kind of like the thing that they have going on They They clicked really well. They wrote really well together. And so in early 1991, David and Adam ask Matt Malley, Steve Bowen and Charlie Gillingham to help them record a demo. They also invite another friend, guitarist David Immergluck, who has the coolest last name, Immergluck. I love that. Um, who he would, he would play with them from time to time. He at this point and for the next couple of years, like the next 20 years, he's not an official member of the group. He just would like bounce in, do some sessions or cover a show mm-hmm. here or there and bounce out. And therefore Counting Crows was hatched. Uh which what they ended up dubbing themselves. And I'll praise you in this store and out. <laughs> and I'm realizing now that I forgot to read my intro quote, which is really good. So we're gonna read it now. Uh this is how the VH1 behind the music special starts. The history of rock and roll is littered with heartbreaking stories of tragedy and failure. And then there's the Counting <laughs> Crows.
0: VH one behind the music gives no fucks. I love it so much give not a single fuck
1: if they about is, your thoughts if there is not a vh1 special when i pick an artist i'm sad about it <gasps> yes because it's not as fun anyway so counting crows has hatched uh they ended up they like loved playing together this is this like demo group they didn't really get together the intention of starting a band more just like let's let adam cut this demo that he wants to cut but mm-hmm. they had fun doing it so they gave him a name uh the name of the band Derives from a British nursery rhyme called One for Sorrow, which is like a superstitious nursery rhyme about counting magpies, which are basically crows. crows. Adam Duritz first heard the the rhyme in the film Signs of Life, which he was really good friends at the time with Mary Louise Parker, who's in that movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, if anyone's curious, here's the modern version of that nursery rhyme. One for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy five for silver six for gold seven for a secret never to be told eight for a wish nine for a kiss ten for a bird you must not miss Hmm. not that deep of a nursery rhyme but you know that's what gets the creative juices flowing if you're counting crows then that's up to you he actually went on to feature this rhyme later in their career or not i say later it was like the same year um in their song a murder of one which is on their debut album
0: that's creative because it's
1: crows yeah yeah he Ooh. is a adam duritz gets a lot of shit counting crows which we'll get to is a band that people have to hate on for no reason they're kind of like nickelback before they were nickelback like
0: yeah people just
1: shit on counting crows for literally no reason adam duritz is a genius lyricist yeah um but we'll, we'll get there so at this point they're just like six dudes and some instruments they have no manager no record label And so they just make a bunch of copies of their demo and mail them out to people. And they said it got to the point that um, they would call up radio stations to say, hey, can we send you a demo? And they'd say, oh, no, I already got it from my friend Joe. Like, he gave me a copy. Because people were making their own copies and giving it to their friends because they loved it so much, which is totally a 90s thing. It's so funny. Mm. Um, And then when I say demo tape, I mean literal cassette tape. The manager, their current manager at the time when this VH1 special was made, still had the original cassette tape that he mailed to them Aww. because he was so like impressed with what he heard that he I kept it. I love that. Their manager, you could tell their manager, I forget his name because they only showed it that one time. Uh, you could tell their manager really loved working with them and mm-hmm. like really believed in what they were doing. So uh, that strategy did work. They landed some management, and in February of 1992, their management invited a bunch of record label executives to watch the band perform at this this tiny club in San Francisco called the I-Beam. So they invited, like, I don't know, like 20-something labels. Ten showed up, and the morning after the show, nine of them made offers.
0: Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. Opposite Alanis Morissette.
1: Yes. So after... like spending some time weighing these offers, I keep saying like, and I hate that, but it's a San Francisco thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're in the valley. I don't know Is San Francisco in the valley. I know nothing about California geography. Just roll with it. Just roll with it. I'm an East Coast girl. Um, so they weigh all the offers and spend a couple days, I think, doing that. Uh, they end up settling with Geffen Records because they had ah. Guns N' Roses and Nirvana on their roster at the time. Yeah, prospects were high. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the band moves into a house in San Francisco. They rent out the entire house and they start working in a studio with producers to really hone in on their sound because they kind of just came together, and made this demo and didn't really have a plan beyond that. Yeah. They didn't have anything nailed down.
0: Like no. his goal um, was to become famous. Yeah, that's that's it. That was it. And then he got there and he was like, all right. He's like, I, OK, do I do? we got
1: to deal with that what We got to <laughs> actually make some music. So they work with these producers to figure out exactly what their sound is, polish up the demos that they made. And they do this polishing process for nine months. They go wow. through all these different phases and different processes. And eventually, they just actually decided they needed to play as l- simply and little as possible to just let Adam shine through and his story that he's doing shine through. And pretty quickly after that, in the the fall of ninety three, They released their debut album, August and Everything After. And they've been playing some shows around to, you know, practice and figure out their sound. And based on that that live performance, everyone kind of thought, oh, this is going to be like a classic rock Jim Morrison, Bob Dylan sound. Mm -hmm. They were wrong because counting, I mean, they're inspired by those bands. Yeah. uh, But they're not quite those bands. August and Everything After is not a Bob Dylan album. Like it's pretty different. And so by the time this album drops, no one really knows what to do with it. The record label doesn't know what to do with it or how to promote it. They didn't even bother to drop a single. Wow. But by some crazy just phenomenon, people start doing what they do have the demo tape and like they share it with their friends and that friend shares it yeah. with a friend.
0: That was a big thing in the punk underground.
1: And it got to the point where... Um, sorry, it wasn't getting radio play because they didn't do a single, but people are sharing this, this the record with each other and they start touring. They start touring literally just like dive bars and radio DJs would come to those dive bars and be like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Can I play this on the radio? And so they started to play it on these tiny little college radio stations and it got to the small town radio stations and it got to the bigger regional radio stations. And none of the, like, All this is because, not because a single has been promoted, it's because DJs are going to the live shows and having their minds blown. Uh, The former executive of Geffen, John Sykes, is interviewed in the VH1 special, and he was like, when we first tried to drop them, or to break them, they were too old for teen driven top 40, but too young for the classic rock stations, so Mm -hmm. they didn't even know where to promote them. And it's getting some radio play, but, I mean, it's like college radio stations. It's nothing that's going to change the world. So Mr. Sykes calls up a friend that he has at SNL and tells him about the band. And a month later, they play on that show for the entirety of the United States. Uh, one of the songs they play is Mr. Jones and Me, which is just the time I'm going to use to say what it's about. Uh, Adam wrote this song when he was in the Himalayas or who wrote it about a guy who was in the Himalayas with Marty Jones. And it just is a song about wanting to be a musician and make it big. And what's going to happen when we get famous? Like what's yeah. it going to be like? It's interesting.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, You're so on your point.
1: Ironic considering what's about to happen to them. They play SNL and suddenly things go out of control. Mr. Jones and me jumps 40 spots a week on the billboard holy chart shit. for the next five weeks over the course of five weeks it goes to number 200 to number four and six months
0: later they sold a million records holy shit because snl if you wanted to make it big that's where you go it's so weird it used to be a place it was basically the ed sullivan show
1: for the the 80s and right. early 90s like you would go on there if you were trying to make it big whereas now i feel like you have to be, you have to be big enough even play on snl
0: yeah like usually the people who go on snl you have to reach a certain either have to be big or you're about to be big and like they kind of know when an artist is about to be big it's not a chance thing anymore
1: olivia rodrigo got to play because she just exploded i don't know yeah
0: lizzo before whenever she just had the song um juice out Mm mm-hmm she played it well that was jimmy fallon but still the point remains she played on jimmy fallon and then a few weeks later she was big yeah but she was already on her way up
1: Mm -hmm. so um this record earned them the nickname the nickname accounting crows (laughs) at geffen because it made the company so much money i love that um and and all the interviews around this time or looking back at this time, they say that it, it was so surreal, and they didn't expect it to happen. That the whole time they felt it was happening to someone else, because mm. they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. Because they didn't they didn't have this typical band struggle of, you know, grinding for eight years before they get their big break. Right. They're pretty much an overnight success, yeah, because of one performance on SNL. And so by spring nineteen ninety four, the album is selling a million records a month, which is a unreal month? a month jeez the band clearly had to tour because they're they're hot right now so they tour pretty extensively in 93 and 94 uh both handling their own shows and supporting other artists such as the rolling stones damn the, the cranberries los lobos and bob dylan holy shit good names not small shows either i'm sure and adam starts to get really worried about this fame because he doesn't want to be another act that just rises to fame really quickly and then burns out mm-hmm. so instead of you know doing something to prevent that he just shuts down everything for the album for august and everything after no more singles no more videos he was so scared they get overexposed and he was like no more guys we got you cannot promote this album anymore it, they'd even may already made a video for Round Here, and he refused to let them put it out because he oh, didn't want geez. any more attention on him and the band. I mean, that's one way to do it, I guess. You do risk, at that point in history, You there was very much a risk of overexposure.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Because there wasn't a lot of alternative. Like now, it's the same 40 songs on the radio, but if you don't want to listen to Top 40 radio, you don't have to listen to Top 40 radio.
0: Yeah. Um, more of a risk to get sick of the song yeah and then you get sick of the artist yeah
1: because I mean you only have so many things to listen to on the radio they finish touring the album and they come back home to San Francisco and they were all burnt out and freaked out because they did not expect it to go zero to 100 like this yeah and so they start fighting but pretty quickly they realize that all the fights centered around one person and that is drummer Steve Bowman uh oh they, deci- they deduced that five out of the six times there was a fight, Steve was involved. <laughs> so in 94, Steve leaves the band, and they replace him with Ben Mize, who had 12 hours to get himself together, quit his job, quit his band he was working on, and play for 8,000 people on the first night. Jeez. <laughs> but he, he nailed it he clicked with the band immediately and they loved him so he got the job sorry to his old band in 1995 adam goes back home to berkeley they, they toured a little bit more at this point mm-hmm. they got a new drummer and he tries to blend in but everyone knows who he is at this point he has a very distinctive hairstyle too which yes. is not helping um, and he suffered a nervous breakdown because it got to the point where kids were camping in his front yard. He couldn't go to the grocery store mm. it, without being recognized. Like he's just getting mobbed all the time. Yeah. So he moves to L.A. Oh, uh, because that makes sense. Where he getting blend in. Cause well, that's I true. I mean, everyone's famous in L.A. Yeah. Or at least they, they aren't like, oh, my God, you're that's a true. famous person. Can I touch you? Which freaked him out. Um, so he moves to L.A. and for a sense of normalcy, he starts bartending at the Viper Room.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: And he loved it because he was That's just a awesome. normal dude behind a bar working a normal job that. But a
0: very famous room, like a very yeah. famous bar.
1: Yeah. He probably wouldn't. I don't know if he would have got that job if he wasn't Adam Duritz. But, you know. Yeah. It is what it is. But it gives him a chance to, like, calm down, lay low for a while right. and, like, Reevaluate. Uh, by winter 1995, he's like shunned the music scene. He doesn't want to be a part of it during this time. And for a man who's trying to avoid attention, he does a really good job of bringing attention on himself because he starts to date famous actresses such as Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox. Uh, that'll do it. So he ends up in all the gossip magazines, all the gossip newspapers.
0: He also happened to be dating like two of the biggest stars due to friends and because of that the media and the
1: I mean the tabloids were not very nice to him because he's not a traditionally attractive you know brad pitt type mm-hmm. so they're really mean to him and they're like how in the world did this guy get courtney cox what's he hiding and
0: 90s you know, tabloids man
1: maybe he's just sensitive because he writes really vulnerable lyrics yeah maybe that's it but that doesn't do much to help him lay low uh, he eventually stopped writing music, and his bandmates would call him and be like, hey, man, let's go write some stuff together. Let's go play around. And he'd just say, I'm not in a band right now.
0: Holy shit. So he's really going through something.
1: Yeah. Um. So I, I in 2018, I think it's 2018, 2018, 2008, he ends up getting diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. So this whole time, it feels like all this is happening to someone else. He's just observing, mm-hmm. um, which he eventually writes about and makes sense of later in life but this time he has no clue what's happening he's right. just like i'm done being famous goodbye um but eventually he does come around and it decides it's time to make more music and so they do what they do best the band rented another house and set up to work on their sophomore album which would become recovering the satellites and this Where Mister Jones and me was very much a like hopeful, optimistic. What's it gonna be like to be famous? Mm -hmm. Song. This is very much an introspective. um, Oh shit! I'm famous. Album. Yeah. So the the album contains lyrics such as these days I feel like I'm fading away. Like sometimes when I hear myself on the radio, from Have you seen me lately? And in the song Recovering the Satellites, he writes, "Gonna get back to basics. Guess I'll start it up again." Um, It's since its release, it's been described as a concept album of sorts, trying to pick up the pieces of a family, a social life, and a psyche shattered by fame. Um, and it doesn't go over well, because people it's, don't want to hear you complain about being famous. It's somber. Well, people don't want to hear you complain about being famous. Yeah, exactly. Um, it actually gets him a pretty bad reputation. Uh, in a 2021 interview with the Grammys, the interviewer asked him, my view is that you guys are a great American rock band, full stop. Maybe the only true artistic successor to Van Morrison, but you said there was a point that the people have viewed the band as a joke. Why do you think that was? And this was Adam Duritz's response because you annoy the shit out of people when you're really successful on the very simplest level. Having massive success on the radio means that they'll play you every hour and that will annoy the fuck out of people. After a while, it's like, I don't want to hear the same shit in my car every day. They're not trying to sustain your career. It's the radio's business to play what people want to hear so they get advertising dollars. So yeah, too much success doesn't really breed more of it all the time. Uh, There were years when we didn't have reviews of live shows or records. They were like, here's Adam whining again while he's fucking famous chicks. That just became the narrative. And then it kind of cleans itself up and rehabs itself. Nobody goes 30 years and stays beloved. It's
0: impossible. Hmm.
1: Which is so interesting and so opposite of the trajectory that a lot of bands have talked about have. Yeah. They they have a very long rise to fame and they generally are beloved. But Counting Crows just got shat on for being famous.
0: Right. And I think for him, it, you know, to get my armchair therapist yes. out, I, I think part of the issue is he, because he shot up to fame, he didn't have that opportunity with these bands are in long haul, they see that gradual rise. Yeah. So it gives them more sustainability to their career, so to speak, where they can actually like have the appropriate matured emotions to deal with it. But when you shoot up that fast, like you can't process it. Like the yeah. brain just breaks down. And and I mean that like it's just so hard yeah, to it process was, all that information. It
1: was a lot for them. Um this is the album that has a long December, which is my favorite Counting Crows song and the time in which I'm gonna insert the first time I heard Counting Crows. So my my father, my biological father, who if you're listening to this, maybe try calling me instead of listening oh, to this shit. podcast. Shit. Um
0: Yeah, what she said. <laughs> uh, I'm her best friend, Bub. <laughs>
1: he showed me a long December. I was like, I think it was probably in seventh or eighth grade, maybe sixth grade. He was like showing me songs to put on my iPod because, you know, diversify my music taste. And he showed me it and started making fun of it because there's the the line, the smell of hospitals in winter. And like my, my, he's into music, but you can definitely tell he's not into lyrics because he thought that was the funniest line ever. And I was, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know. I kind of like these lyrics. These are kind (laughs) of good lyrics.
0: And then I went on to listen to it like a billion times on my iPod. I'm not saying that's a character study based off our private conversations, but that's a character it's study. It's a character study. Um,
1: so Long December, probably, I don't know, there's a debate I'm learning in the Count and Crows fandom, whether Long December or Mr. Jones and Me is their most beloved song. Mm-hmm. It's up in the air. I personally like Long December better, but that is me. That was a side rant that had nothing to do with this album, but that was the first time I heard Counting Crows. And I pretty much only knew August and everything after and Long December until I started this research. Adam Duritz is a genius. Lyrics are incredible, really fucking sad songs Mm -hmm. to a a really upbeat melody. They're like, they're sad bops.
0: (laughs) Sad boy, sad boy music before there was sad boy music. Exactly.
1: Um... And they didn't really fit in that grunge scene. Like their first album came out, I think, six weeks after In Utero came out.
0: Very different. Yeah. Counting, Counting Crows is a hard box. Like because they don't really fit in a genre.
1: Yeah. They've got grunge influences, but they've also got like Americana influences. Yeah.
0: And I think in the 90s, that didn't bode as well. Mm-mm. It was a harder sell. At that point where today you can get away with it more. Yeah. there's There wasn't a lot of genre bending happening. No. Not like it is today. Because there's so many playlists on Spotify. Yeah. You can find into so many different categories.
1: Um, so to, to round out people saying Adam was complaining, he says, I think you, I guess you can call it whining, but for me it's about art and art is about expressing yourself. So fuck the haters. They, to promote this album... In 1997, they go on a co-highlighting tour with the Wallflowers that would continue through September. But after nine months of constant touring to support this album, Adam developed nodules on his vocal cords in July and had to cancel like two months worth of gigs. That'll mess you up. Yeah. You don't want those to rupture. So good call on suspending your shows. He eventually did recover. Like he's fine now vocally. Mm hmm. In 1999, they performed at Woodstock 99. <laughs> if you want to hear about that shit show, go back one episode because yes. we literally just talked about it. Um, I won't share any other Woodstock stories. I just think it's funny they were there because they were on the same day as Metallica. <laughs> it's an odd mix. <laughs> but later that year, they released This Desert Life, which features these songs hanging around in colorblind. Colorblind was featured in the movie Cruel Intentions which was a very large movie that year so it, it helped them push album sales um, and this is the point in time where at 1999, 2000-ish they finally invite David Emmergluck to join the band as an official member <laughs> He never got the invite? <laughs> no. So he's just there? It took seven years. Now he's just been bouncing back and forth. He played on every Counting Crows album as a sideman, but he kept declining a permanent position because he had other stuff he wanted to do, but yeah. finally he joined the band. Good for him. Um, and he joins, and he actually plays... He's still there, I think. Um, he plays acoustic guitar, electric guitar, pedal steel guitar, side guitar, and mandolin, as he's well as... one to keep background vocals, so... He is important mm-hmm. he's been doing it the whole time he just never toured with them
0: yeah
1: uh they released their fourth album hard candy in 2009 and this got a lot better reviews than their last couple it had more quote radio friendly songs
0: mm-hmm.
1: which f- uh american girls is one of them and features cheryl Crow on background vocals
0: Yeah, that's nice
1: midway through the hard candy tour Second drummer, remember this is second drummer, Ben Mize, amicably split, uh, left the band. He just left in the middle of the tour to go spend more time with his family. Weird to do that in the middle of a tour. I think there's probably more there, but that's, that's me reading into it. Um, so he completed the American leg and before they went overseas, they replaced him with Jim Boygie, Boy, i don't know how to pronounce his name no one ever said it in the documentary uh but he was a former drummer for cheryl crow so i'm gonna guess yeah. they met him when they met sharon i don't know um in 2004 they had a little song called accidentally in love on the shrek 2
0: soundtrack i remember that song
1: it was nominated for an oscar I remember <laughs> for best original song, but lost to Al Ultro Lado Dario from the motorcycle diaries. But honestly, which one do we remember more? Uh Accidentally in Love. I'm accidentally in love. Da-da-da-da-da. Accidentally in love. Well,
0: that was a good song.
1: It was a good the Shrek soundtracks had no need to go as hard as they did. But they did it
0: for us. They did it for us. Let, random story. First Shrek. Album, "Who Let the Dogs Out"? Mm,
1: I forget that's in there
0: all the time. It's in there. My grandmother fell in love with that song, (laughs) and she would call me, okay, on the landline, and she'd go, "Who let the dogs out? Woof 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 woof." She's sweetest thing, the sweetest thing.
1: I remember All Star was in there, and they had the music video on the DVD. Yeah, we
0: all we all know All Star because it's the most memeable, but. Baja Men was there,
1: yes. But they had the music video, a Shrek music video, to All Star on the DVD that you could watch over and over and over and over. And whenever at my best friend's house, we would put on socks and like run and slide and like spin <laughs> to that song on the DVD. We probably did it
0: like fifty I times. I love that Shrek. That shaped our generation. It did. I remember that <laughs> DVD too. Like that was I went I did a sleepover and we watched that.
1: that. That's when DVD menus went hard and they were like super themed. Sometimes
0: there was a game in there or a
1: hidden Easter egg. Like you could select that one fence post yes. that would take you to yes. a yes.
0: I loved stuff like that.
1: How far society has fallen. Ugh. Um. So they kind of don't do much after Shrek for three years, two years, two-ish years. Um, but in 2006, Durrett starts hinting in interviews that the next Counting Crows album was, was coming. And they had spent three weeks working in a recording studio with Gil Norton, who had last produced Recovering the Satellites for them, um, and revealed that the title of the album would be Saturday Nights and Sunday Mornings, because Saturday night is when you sin, and Sunday is when you regret it. Sinning is often done very loudly, angrily, bitterly, violently, which I don't know, have much to say about that album, but I just loved that yeah. reason behind that that, that album name, name. Uh, that an- actually did not release in 2007 and wound up releasing on March 25th, 2008 on August 8th, 2007. That's a lot of numbers. VH1 filmed a live performance of Mr. Jones for the miniseries "100 Greatest Songs of the 90s." That song ranked number 27 on the list, which is pretty high.
0: That is pretty high.
1: Out of 100. Uh, In 2000, this is the most random point that really has nowhere to go, so I'm just putting in here chronologically. In 2008, a guy named Virgil Griffith, who is a software application writer. So like a code bro. Mm -hmm. He conducts a study in which he took the 10 highest favorite music options from Facebook for about 1,300 colleges and cross-referenced them with the average SAT score for each college. Counting Crows is one of the top artists. The other top artists include Sufjan Stevens, Guster, and U2. Not a single one of those surprises me. (laughs) Nerd music. Um... In 2014, they released their last, what would be their last album for a while, called "Somewhere Under Wonderland," and then they all just kind of go off and work on personal projects. They've been doing, you know, the Counting Crows grind for a while. It's time to take a break. Mm-hmm. During this break, Adam Duritz buys three wineries in Napa. <laughs>
0: this, this, this gentleman—I mean this—with absolute respect—he's having some crises in his life. He
1: is. He really is. This is about the time he got diagnosed with a uh, borderline, per- yeah. Er, dif- Dissociative disorder. It's
0: good because then he can, you know, he it's good when you recognize those level things. Level himself. Uh, so yeah. I said
1: he bought. He became invest- an investor in three wineries. Uh, they're, if anyone's curious, they're the Elise Winery, Institution Winery, and Addicts, A-D-D-A-X Winery. In February 2018, Duritz started his own podcast good called the Underwater Sunshine Podcast, which is a weekly music podcast with music journalist James Campion. Um, so they've been quiet for a long time. They're not working on a whole lot of new projects, but in 2019, fall of 2019, he starts telling people that they had started writing new music that past August. And in February, 2020, he's like, Hey, you know what? We're actually going to release a new project. It's going to be these suites of music that'll be released across various EPs. And so they start studio sessions in late February, early March 2020 Uh uh-oh and then bam pandemic so they can't tour they can't go to the studio they have to take a, a hiatus yeah he takes a hiatus from his podcast so what do you think he does to fill his time
0: video games twitch twitch streaming
1: he begins hosting cooking videos on his Instagram stories. That's
0: pretty. That's close enough. <laughs>
1: he he would do like interviews and I guess a, a duo live with Chef Tyler Florence, and he said that the type of research that he would do either for his music or for the podcast turned into exploring more about food and cooking to share with others.
0: Aww, which I, I think is that. cute.
1: He eventually resumed. Producing the Underwater Sunshine podcast in May of 2021 because you know, at that point, we're all still looking for things to do, right? And out of all of this, I'm assuming this is why this, this, their new album is called What It Is Is His Cooking Journey because they ended up naming their EP that came out in May 2021 Butter Miracle, Sweet One. I have no, nothing to back up, that's why it's called The Butter Miracle. But I'm gonna believe that's why it's called yeah, the Butter Miracle. It's probably
0: a good assumption. Joanna, <laughs> that's my niece, and I know you listen to this, and you are awesome, and you're one of the joys of my life. But stop texting me, <laughs> girl.
1: It's okay. We're almost done. Um. So this this I will uh, this EP marked the end of a seven year hiatus for the band, um. And they've already started teasing that a second a- EP, Butter Miracle Suite Two will be released sometime 2022 we believe who the hell knows the way the music industry is working um but the two suites will come together to form a full album the butter miracle and uh that is counting crows they their legacy is pretty much that people hate on them for no reason and it's not fair just because you were annoyed by them in 1993 (laughs) doesn't mean you need to shit on them now correct um I heard someone on a podcast I listened to describe their music as CVS core and I hate that but it's very accurate. But that's
0: good though. You
1: hear Mr. Jones and me while you're waiting for your prescription. Yes. Is that a bad thing? Um, Yeah, check out if you haven't listened to Counting Crows because I feel like unless your parents were very into 90s music you probably don't know Counting Crows if you're our age. I hope you do. I really hope you do but then again you know we have friends who don't know who Fleetwood Mac was, Correct. so I'm not going to assume.
0: If they don't know Fleetwood Mac, what are the odds? I'm
1: not going to assume anyone out there has heard anything, so check out Counting Crows.
0: Thank you for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Good Pods. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at ShieldRocky.com, there you find socials, show notes, contact us and our merch. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.